Hello, welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I am Ezra Klein. I am here without Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. They're off having fun somewhere without me. But but we are here having fun without them. I'm joined today by Dara Lind, by Dylan Matthews, uh, frequent guest of the show. How's it going? It's a good day to be back in the office, out of the sun. Happy America. Happy Ooh. America. We got a bunch of good things to talk about today. We're going to talk about the travel ban, which has been revised and implemented. Uh, and Dara is going to walk us through that. She knows much more about that than anyone else I know. Uh, we're going to talk about Trumpism and what it has become or what it is not becoming, how distinct as a policy philosophy it has emerged. And we're going to talk about whether young men are not working because video games have become awesome. I'm excited about this conversation because I just recently got some awesome new video games and I'm considering no longer working. It's always good to have a, a qualitative data to supplement our quantitative data. <laughs> uh, before we get into it, a couple quick plugs. You should be checking out Worldly, our new foreign policy podcast. This week was North Korea, which ended up being an extremely prescient episode, given that North Korea is now testing or just tested an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching Alaska. So I felt extremely up on that news because I had listened to this whole backgrounder on North Korea right before. I suggest you go do the same. That is worldly. You can find it wherever you find your podcast. Also, Weeds fans, I think, will be interested in the interview I have this week on the Ezra Klein show. I have a long debate. I think it's fair to call it a debate with Ovik Roy, who's emerged as the, the main champion of the Senate GOP's health care bill. Uh, I am not a champion of that bill, and we talk about our differences on it at length. I think it's a really good episode if you want to understand how conservative health policy wonks are thinking about this bill, what they like in it, what they don't like in it. Uh, I think Weeds folks will like it. Uh, but let's start on the travel ban. Dara, what is different about the travel ban that has gone into effect with what is in people's heads when they think about the travel ban from right, right after Trump took office? Right. So uh, to to you know just state explicitly, uh, if you were not paying close attention to the news last week, you may not know that the uh, Trump administration does in fact have a thing in effect right now in embassies and consulates around the world uh, that can be called a travel ban. It's the you know, ultimate expression of what we saw in late January when they signed this big executive order and there were all these protests at the airports and there was all this mishigas back and forth about preventing green card holders from entering the U.S. and all of that. Uh, what we now have in effect is a lot more subtle. It's something that isn't going to see huge expression in the U.S., which also means it's not something that's going to see massive airport protests, uh, probably. So what's actually happening here is that instead of the travel ban being something that is, you know, you can be refused entry into the United States if you come from particular Muslim-majority countries, uh, the Trump administration has instructed people who are giving visas out at embassies and consulates around the world to not issue visas to people from Iran, uh, Libya, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen, uh, unless they fit particular criteria. And uh, that's in part because the Supreme Court, which has finally gotten the ongoing litigation over whether this is constitutional or not, that prevented it from going into effect when President Trump signed the second version of this executive order in March. The Supreme Court, upon getting the case, ruled on the last day of its term that over the summer, while the Supreme Court is in recess, the travel ban is going to go into effect. And then the Supreme Court will take up the kind of underlying constitutionality question when it comes back in the fall. So, what they did, though, was say instead of putting the whole thing as Trump signed it in March into effect, the Trump administration will only be able to bar people from entering the U.S. who do not have, quote unquote, bona fide relationships with a person or organization in the U.S., which is not a distinction that existed before, either with the travel ban or in immigration law. So what we currently have is a process of trying to figure out right now through Trump administration, you know, kind of memos, but probably ultimately through litigation, what counts as a bona fide relationship to someone in the U.S. and what does not. Before we get into what those relationships are, can I ask you something about just a legal process here? Mm -hmm. This feels to me like what people mean when they say legislating from the bench. They took a piece of statutory text or regulatory text, and then they just decided it was going to mean something somewhat different and more limited and more constitutional than it meant. I mean, it's as if Congress took it up and amended it. So 
I will say that no one was anticipating that the Supreme Court was going to do this particular thing. The phrase bona fide relationship was like not something that occurred to people. But if you think about it, it makes a certain amount of sense from the perspective of the Supreme Court justices are going to be out over the summer and they want to prevent there from being this flood of litigation about who is included and who is not included in the ban. The litigation that they've been looking at that resulted in Courts on both the East and West Coast saying this shouldn't go into effect. It's probably unconstitutional. It wasn't because people sued because they couldn't get into the U.S. It was because people sued who were in the U.S., who were trying to bring their relatives over or they were organizations, you know, or the state of Washington in one case and Hawaii trying to bring people to come work and study. And they had standing in the legal system to say we should be able to bring these people over. So the bona fide relationship standard makes sense as a way to try to Give the people who actually had standing to sue over the ban the ability to bring people so that they wouldn't be able to sue. And to meanwhile, give the Trump administration a win on being able to limit people who wouldn't have standing to sue in the US. So, you know, there's definitely going to be litigation as a way to limit that litigation and to make it easier for judges to say, this is frivolous. We're going to throw this out. We're going to let the Supreme Court decide when it comes back in the fall. It makes a certain amount of sense. But yeah, it's the Opinion was technically per curiam, but I have heard more than one person say I don't know what that means. It's, it, it means it's unsigned. So, you know, it's it's not explicitly unanimous, but it it can be assumed that unless someone's explicitly saying I disagree with this, that it's kind of the opinion of the court. But I heard more than one person say this is a very John Roberts way to solve a problem because it was kind of splitting the baby in half and giving each side something they could call a win. And in the meantime, trying to limit the problems for lower courts down the road. So what is a bona fide relationship? Uh, and can you just also explain today, what the, the previous – previously yeah. it was just anybody from these countries more or less, right? Right. So in the, the first version, which was in effect for a week in late January and early February and then got put on hold by the courts, what A, included Iraq in addition to the six countries that are currently included, and B, said that – no national who was outside the U.S. of those countries could enter the U.S., uh, which meant that, you know, people who had been living in the U.S. for years and years who had green cards could be detained or prevented from entering. It meant that, you know, people who already had visas but who were out of the country for travel couldn't necessarily come back, that sort of thing. The version of the travel ban that the Trump administration tried as kind of a version two, because it was very obvious that there were massive legal problems that they were never going to get through the courts with version one, said, if you don't currently have a valid visa on the day that this goes into effect, we won't give you a visa. If there's a particular compelling circumstance, we'll have a waiver process. But for the most part, we will not give you a visa if you come from one of these six countries. And we won't resettle refugees in the U.S. for, you know, 120 days, which is the other part of this that kind of has gotten a little bit subsumed because of the conversation about what counts as a, you know, country ban versus Muslim ban. So the Supreme Court kind of took away some of the waiver process thing by saying, well, you're going to have to give them in cases where there's a bona fide relationship. And it listed some cases of a bona fide relationship, like if you have an offer to work in the US, like in the course of regular business, it's that's not just an organization saying, oh, sure, we'll let you in. You happen to come from a banned country. You know, if it's if it's if it looks like a legitimate thing, they have to give you a visa. If you have an immediate family member in the US, they have to give you a visa. The question has really been, A, what counts as a close family member? The Trump administration initially last week said, well, we'll count in-laws or step-parents, but we won't count grandparents, we won't count fiancés, uh, got a tremendous amount of pushback for that sort of thing. And like 15 minutes before the ban was supposed to go into effect, a consulate said, you know what? Actually, if you're engaged to someone in the U.S., you will. That does count as a close family but relationship. But not a grandparent. Not a grandparent yet. The state of Hawaii is – doing a thing where they ask the judge to, quote unquote, clarify the scope of the remaining injunction against the travel ban in the hopes that they'll get the judge to say, what the heck, dudes? Grandparents are totally close relationships. Um, But the other big question that remains is refugees don't just come to the U.S. They are agreed to be settled by a refugee resettlement agency that is contracted with the U.S. government. So, And so what kinds this, of groups are those? Are those like churches? Yeah, and- they're mostly religious groups. They're, you know, at, at this point, they're fairly professionalized, right? They've been in the business of resettling refugees for 
you know, decades, a lot of their income often comes from the money that they get from governments. They get literally paid per refugee to resettle them. They have a certain amount of time in which they kind of have to set people up with houses and jobs, etc. It's a very difficult thing, but it's a thing they've gotten really good at. And they've already had to deal with a lot of uncertainty over the last six months. And now they have to deal with a lot more. Um, because the Trump administration has said that just having an agreement with a resettlement agency to get resettled in the U.S., is not going to be sufficient for a bona fide relationship. But they haven't really spelled that out yet. They're allowing refugees to come for the first like week or so. And then they're going to start imposing this new standard that is currently not clear. And this is literally tens of thousands of people who have been going through the process for, you know, it takes about two years to get cleared to resettle in the US and who if they are banned for the next 120 days, uh, which stretches really until the end of the fiscal year. So it's going to be much harder to get resettled next year because the Trump administration wants to resettle many fewer refugees than the Obama administration did. And the Obama administration set this year's quota. But also, there are a lot of clearances that you have to go through. You have to get a medical check. You have to get a background check. And those expire after a certain period of time. So for some of these refugees, it really is a matter of if they can't resettle over the next few months, they may not be able to get resettled at all. And it's entirely unclear as of this point, as of, you know, 1030 a.m. on Wednesday, July 5th, who is going to get to resettle in the U.S. as a refugee. And, and so while they're waiting for that, are is this a population that's largely in sort of camps and in, in sort of sender countries? Um, some of them are in camps. Some of them have also been kind of semi-temporarily settled in urban areas in Europe. I know that there was, after 9-11, when they put a hold on resettling refugees for a little bit, there were a lot of cases in which people who had been given temporary apartments in urban areas in Europe, you know, they were, th their leases on those apartments essentially ended because they were supposed to be resettled in the US. So they ended up de facto homeless for a few weeks, which is kind of the worst case scenario and what the Trump administration is trying to avoid by allowing people to come for the first little bit. Um, but it's certainly there is a bigger problem with the global refugee crisis of how to permanently integrate people into countries that aren't explicitly resettling them. And that gets even harder when you don't know if you're going to be there for two weeks or 90 days or the rest of your life. Lyft believes that being a ride-sharing driver should be fun. If you're having a good time, so are the passengers. It's a pretty simple formula. Happy drivers mean happy passengers. And maybe that's why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect 5-star rating. So when you become a driver, you can earn hundreds of dollars a week plus tips. If you want to earn more money, you drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. Lyft was the first rideshare platform with tipping built right into the app. Because getting tips shouldn't depend on your passenger having a crumpled up bill in their pocket. You keep, as a driver, 100% of the tips, and they add up pretty fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first introduced. And Express Pay lets you get paid almost instantly instead of waiting around for weeks. Lyft has even taken the guesswork out of pickups. A new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. So join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lyft.com slash weeds today. You get a $500 new driver bonus. That is lyft.com slash weeds. lyft.com slash weeds. Limited time only. Terms apply. There are different sets of issues around Trump's refugee policy. One is compared to where we were two years ago under President Obama or where we thought we might be if, if Hillary Clinton had both won the vote and won the election. And, and that was around Syrian refugees. There's a global refugee crisis, huge number of refugees at the moment. America is, by many people, worried about that, considered to be not settling that many of them. The Obama administration was beginning to ramp it up. Clinton was expected to continue ramping it up. And the Trump administration is constricting that. And they have full authority to do that, fully separate from the ban. And then there's a the question of this ban, which initially was extremely broad and extremely chaotically implemented and has now been sanded down into something that is both not good, but how big of a difference is it from what we would expect the Trump refugee policy to, to be in its consequences absent the ban? So I think it's kind of worth thinking about the ban as having two separate components. One is the restrictions on refugees and one is the restrictions on granting visas. As far as refugees are concerned, the thing that really distinguishes the ban is that refugee policy tends to get made on, you know, at this very global level and on the front end so that people who are already going through the process, there isn't then this constriction of like, oh, we have 
100,000 people who have been cleared to resettle in the US and we're only going to settle 50,000 of them. So introducing that kind of uncertainty late in the process is a big deal that the ban, you know, the ban is really the Trump administration's vehicle for changing refugee policy in the short and medium term. Come next year, you know, it's going to be the regular administration tells Congress how many refugees they're going to resettle in the coming year and from which areas. And like, that's just going to be how it is. That's really how refugee policy tends to get made. And it tends to take a few years for a shift in priorities saying, say, you know, when the Obama administration said, gee, we really got to make an effort to resettle refugees from Syria, it took a couple of years for those to really start coming through the pipeline because the process is so long. Um, so the, the ban is really the Trump administration's way of making its policy a thing now as opposed to two years from now. On the visa stuff, it's a lot harder because the process by which visas get approved to come to the U.S. is extremely opaque. It's something that in a lot of cases courts can't really step in on. And it's often extremely arbitrary. And so it's not the easiest thing in the world to say that someone is getting rejected because of the ban versus because of something else. And there have actually been a couple of stories in the news lately about these school robotics teams from Afghanistan and Eritrea just being summarily denied visas to come to the US. Afghanistan and Eritrea aren't countries that are covered by the travel ban. This is not something that is the result of Donald Trump signed an executive order. They're the result of this existing resistance to granting visas to groups of people who might, despite what they say they're in the US for, decide to settle here. And that often means that there's a certain amount of, not to say discrimination, but there are definitely different standards depending on what country you come from and how stable that country is. And so... It's more on the visa side that this is an explicit message being sent to the world instead of this kind of opaque bureaucratic process that might have led to very similar outcomes. So there's a ton of discretion here on the consular official level. Well, one thing that people have talked about a lot that you've talked about a lot in terms of Trump's immigration policies is that the border patrol guard culture is a very restrictionist culture. Both if you go into being a border patrol guard, you're probably not pro unauthorized immigrants coming over here. And and also just what you see in a day to day basis, it, it, it ends up having a very constricting, mm-hmm. you know, conservative effect on you. What is the presumed culture of consular officials worldwide? Many or most consular officials are people who are early in their career as diplomats or State Department officials. So it's it they're people who think of themselves as you know, they want to be able to shape the way that America relates to the rest of the world, shape the way America presents itself to the world. But like, you know, I've heard and I'm sure that both of you have heard from from people who are kind of early career diplomat types that the prospect of being sent somewhere to stamp denied on visas for two years is like not the you know most inspiring way to start one State Department career. But they're also, you know, their career public sector people. They understand that the rules they're given are the rules that they have to implement. And as frustrating And, you know, I don't have a ton of, you know, insider knowledge here, although if any consular official feels like sending me an email, I do have an (laughs) encrypted inbox. Um, How would you find that encrypted uh, inbox? You could find that encrypted inbox pinned to my Twitter account. I believe it is part of my Twitter profile at twitter.com slash dlind. But it does seem like as frustrating as it is to kind of have these standards that are often a little bit weird and opaque and that they – that they may not have the time to implement, right? A lot of this is a question of what the permanent process is going to be, that, you know, what the extreme vetting is going to be that the Trump administration is going to end up instituting. And it's kind of not clear whether that's going to be realistic to add to the burden of often overburdened consular officers. But there isn't the kind of, you know, hashtag resistance culture that you, you know, have seen the rumblings of at, say, EPA where there are a lot of public sector officials who are determined that what the Trump administration wants them to do is contrary to their purpose. And to the law in a, in a real way, that they, they feel like they're implementing the Clean Air Act and they're being asked to not <laughs> implement right. laws of Congress. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, so there's the question of how consular officials, Border Patrol agents get interpret this kind of thing but you've done some some really good reporting uh, you had a good piece where you went to austin and talked to immigrant communities just about how this is interpreted by people who might want to come to the u.s and that above and beyond the specific legal or executive order actions of the administration 
immigrant communities and prospective immigrant communities interpret this in a sort of broad way? Are are you are you seeing that? Are are, are fewer people who might be affected by these kinds of policies even like trying to get into the U.S.? We've seen a little bit of evidence there. It's really on the border where I would be I would be hesitant to call it data over anecdote right now. There has been a little bit of reporting from like U.S. universities that they haven't had as many international student applications. There's a little bit of reporting that indicates that tourism is down. Um, but it's going to be really hard to prove a negative because essentially this is going to be measured in people who never file their visa applications at all. And it's really hard to know how much that's because of U.S. policy versus any other reason that someone might not want to come to the U.S., and how much of it is the ban in particular versus just the fact that we have a president who certainly appears to be telling large swaths of the world, we don't want you here. It is perfectly rational, even if someone might not technically be covered by the travel ban, for them to look at the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration and go, why would I try to go to a country that is telling me that I am a terrorist? You know, it, it's hard to blame people who are not coming to the U.S., even though they might not in practice be restricted. But it also kind of puts the onus on us as journalists to understand that we're not just writing for people who are here and trying to understand what the government is doing, but, you know, writing for people who might be trying to figure out if they can come to the U.S. right now or not. And so in my reporting, I've tried to emphasize the fact that even if technically you're from a banned country and you don't have a bona fide relationship, there is a waiver process available. You should be able to try to apply and see if you can get a waiver, that kind of thing. Um, but obviously, as much as we might like anyone considering immigrating to the U.S. to read Vox.com, <laughs> that is not going to happen. So the kind of misinformation and rumors that often, you know, spread in the absence of really clear communication from the top. And the Trump administration has not been super committed to communicating clearly to potential visa holders, you know, who is going to count as having a bona fide relationship or not. In that vacuum, it can often be rumors and misinformation that have a bigger chilling effect than the policy itself would. So I love cooking. It is one of the main ways I relax after covering this crazy news cycle. But but shopping for the meals, coming up with the meals, meal planning, it's sort of a lot of friction, which is why Blue Apron can be a great fix. It's affordable for less than $10 per person per meal. They deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. There's a ton of variety. You get to choose from a ton of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. They do not repeat a recipe within a year, so you never get bored. It's flexible. You get to customer recipes each week based on your preferences they have a bunch of different delivery options so you can choose based on what fits your needs and there's no weekly commitment so you only get deliveries when you want them each meal comes with step-by-step easy to follow recipe cards and pre-portioned ingredients can be prepared in 40 minutes or less it is a very easy way to cook very fresh delicious tasty food uh, so check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com weeds you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with blue apron so don't wait that is blueapron.com weeds Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I've been thinking about this a lot, and, and I tend to come at it from the more domestic and economic policy side, where, where Trump during the campaign often portrayed himself as a different kind of Republican. He was Republican, and he would say this. He said, like, I am the only Republican who has promised not to cut Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. Mike Huckabee copied me, right? He, he would really draw that distinction sharply. And in office, he's been a completely standard issue, if not unusually conservative Republican. The cuts he's backing to Medicaid are tremendous. He does not have a health insurance plan that will cover everybody. He's not bringing down deductibles. He is not bringing down copays. His tax plan does not raise taxes on people like him. Although there was interesting reporting recently that Steve Bannon is trying to push internally for at least a tax rate increase on the rich. Uh, but it, so far, he's not gotten, so far as we know, any traction on that. There's been a lot of Trumpism that has not manifested, um, again, particularly in the domestic economic policy spheres. Foreign policy seems to me to be a shakier area. There is Trump's personal statements and personal speeches tend to be somewhat Trumpist, although that is somewhat defining Trumpist as just chaotic and hard to read. But in terms of the official foreign policy apparatus, they have tended to try to Toe to the traditional American lines on NATO, on our commitments to international institutions, et cetera. Um, and then there is what I sort of think of as the Trump social conservatism and nativism side on immigration, on refugee policy. 
And and that's really the place where it seems to me there is still a pretty distinct Trumpism. The travel ban, they've really continued to fight for that. That is not what another Republican would have done. Uh, the immigration policy, another Republican would have not put Jeff Sessions in charge of the Department of Justice. So I've been trying to work my way through this and 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 understand what is left in Trumpism. What 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 has Trumpism really turned out to be? So I did this piece a week or two ago, and one of the interesting things about it was I talked to Yuval Levin, who's editor of National Affairs, very, very smart conservative, and he made this point where he said that the issue that we a lot of us got wrong on Trump, particularly policy people got wrong on Trump, was assuming that we all knew that he wasn't into policy details, but we assumed that when he made confident, declarative, upset statements about policies, that those intuitions were very firm. That if he would tweet 10 times or five times that he was going to protect Medicaid, that on some gut level, he meant to do that, even if he didn't really care how it happened. And that it just turned out Trump was very fluid on most of this stuff. He says things very brashly, uh, very confidently. He's a great salesman. He, he always says everything with maximum conviction, but he just doesn't care. Not only is he not in the details, but he actually doesn't care. He wants to have things that seem like wins. He'll take whatever those are, and it's totally fine if they violate everything else he has said on, on the topic. So uh, on the domestic and economic policy side, my sense has been that there is no Trumpism left. But in these other areas, there there seems to me to be a lot more. So I'm, I'm curious for your, your all's thoughts on this. What is Trumpism turned out to be, and how is it different than what you expected during the campaign? I think, and as, as someone who has you know been focusing on the areas where Trumpism kind of has become Trump administration policy, I think what you've identified is, one, there is no Trumpian legislative agenda, which keys into what you've all were talking about, about he doesn't, in fact, have strong policy intuitions that his people are going to go make happen on the Hill. Um, and his people, we should put a pin on that because that's also an interesting yes, yes. topic. But I also think the conflation of you know, not all domestic policy is economic. Also, there's a certain structural bias in D.C. because Congress is where there's a known plot to how Congress makes policy. And therefore, there's a tendency to, under to understand domestic policy as being what Congress does and foreign policy as being what the executive branch does. And I, for, you know, years and years and years have been trying to point out that with immigration, with criminal justice, a lot of things that the federal government does to make domestic policy happen through the executive branch more than they happen through Congress. And it, in those, the Trump administration really has kind of made itself known, not just on those civil issues, but also in things like the production of knowledge, like the EPA stuff that we were talking about. Um, you know, the things that are primarily the, the executive branch's, you know, responsibility, the Trump administration really has taken a policy that is distinct from what other Republicans would have done, whether that's more conservative or more populist is kind of, you know, is, depends on what issue. Um, but I think that we've definitely seen that Trumpism is not straight populism. Uh, if Trumpism were straight populism, we would see a lot more saber rattling about, you know, not cutting taxes on the rich, not cutting Medicare, etc. What we've seen instead is something that could have been identified in Trump's campaign rally rhetoric more than in his tweets, more than in debates, that Trumpism is the idea that law and order need to be actively defended and policy needs to be made in the capacity of bolstering the forces of the state, uh, that it's blue lives matter, that it's the idea that immigration is an existential threat to American public safety and needs to be, you know, that criminal elements need to be rooted out, that it's the idea that protest is is a threat to the well-being of law enforcement officers and is related to urban crime and both of those need to be stomped out. Um, whether that's a governing philosophy as opposed to something that is, you know, manifesting itself on a few particular issues, maybe that's a question. You know, I, that doesn't tell us much about what the Trump administration will do on a huge swath of issues. But I think that if you look back at not what Trump was saying to the public writ large or to policy elites, but what he was saying to his base going way back to 2015, that that's the stuff that really stuck with them. That's the stuff where he distinguished himself from other Republicans, even before he was talking about Medicare or anything like that. And that that has we are now seeing with the Trump administration what that looks like when that philosophy has the policy reins. And it's interesting. I, mean, I think we were talking about immigration, but criminal justice, I feel like, is is just as much a, a cleavage and even a cleavage with some other hypothetical, like very conservative, like Ted Cruz was very involved in in criminal justice reform efforts in the, in the Senate. Um, and it, Trump really 
almost single-handedly seems to have destroyed this major movement among conservatives over the past sort of five to ten years. Um, Steve Tellies and Dave Dagan um, have this this really interesting book on how sort of the conservative movement and conservative elites kind of turned against mass incarceration in recent years. Grover Norquist liked to refer to prison guards as social workers with guns. And the argument was, you know, if we, we want to restrict the state and, and sort of impingement on freedom in other areas, we should want to do this here. And instead you have Jeff Sessions like trying to crack down on medical marijuana, um, using sort of the full power of the DOJ to bolster sentencing, do stricter enforcement. You've you've covered this. Ramon Lopez has covered yeah. this for us. And, and like pulling federal oversight out of places where they're currently involved in trying to repair police community relations. Right, right. So the kind of things that like the the Loretta Lynch and, and Eric Holder DOJs did and in, in making sure that stuff like the Fred, Freddie Gray killing and, and sort of the abuses in departments like Baltimore don't happen again just does not exist anymore. And that's really interesting to me from like a political development angle that it really did seem like this robust thing that was happening in the conservative movement. Like the Koch brothers are super invested in criminal justice reform and put real money behind that. John Arnold, another sort of conservative owner has put a, put a lot of money behind this. And because Jeff Sessions does not buy into that, there's sort of no buy-in by the most powerful Republican in the country anymore. But, I but do this think seems that it's worth me... pointing out that a lot of the development that conservatives have had on criminal justice reform has been on the state and local levels, which is really where most of the work needs right. to be done, and that that does appear to be continuing. Louisiana signed a big criminal justice reform package this year. So I think it's more accurate to say that the federal government, which was lagging behind state governments in criminal justice reform, but where it looked like conservatives would be part of the solution, has now been taken off the table again. But, but this, to me, is where you get into an interesting thing about the dynamics of the Trump administration itself. What you both have said here is that things that run through Jeff Sessions have maintained. I think that's correct. But I think it speaks to something very profound about what has happened to Trumpism, which is that Donald Trump did not have people around him who were committed to this thing we might have thought of as Trumpism. He did not have staffers who believed in his somewhat idiosyncratic view his inconsistently articulated idiosyncratic view of how policy should go down. The one person he did have who both represented something he felt passionate about and was of sufficient stature in Washington that he could take over a cabinet agency was Jeff Sessions. But when you got past him, what Trump ended up staffing his administration with is a collection of people who for various reasons attached to Trump but were not in any particular way bought into his policy. So Gary Cohn did not believe in Trump's populism. Gary Cohn is number two of Goldman Sachs. He was not there to raise taxes on rich people. Reince Priebus is not just a conventional Republican, but a guy whose literal job for years was trying to create Republican unity, right? He comes from Wisconsin. He's very close with Paul Ryan. Similarly, Tom Price, who's running HHS, was the Republican in the House writing the bills Donald Trump was criticizing on health care. And so you ended up with this administration where it's like the people most loyal to Trump were just family members. The people who we ended up staffing a lot of offices with, a lot of them came out of this Brian's previous Mike Pence, like, can we make a normal Republican administration transition project? Then on national security, despite having originally a couple Trumpists, particularly Michael Flynn, he ended up going towards some pretty well-respected generals, H.R. McMaster's, General Mattis. And then there's Jeff Sessions, right? And, and some were Stephen Miller and some were Steve Bannon. I mean, there are a couple people who represent this, but the only one with real power to execute his policy preferences is Jeff Sessions. Everyone else gets blocked in different ways. And Trump, again, Trump could have, if he felt strongly enough about these different things, just demanded his staffers carry out his views. But that to me is what's interesting. You have a place with Sessions and Trump where they agree and Jeff Sessions wants to carry out what we would think of as Trumpism, and Donald Trump is also fine with that, and so that's what happens. In other places, you have staff that appears to me to disagree with Trump's repeatedly stated intuitions on different policy measures, and they win because it turns out Donald Trump doesn't care. So if Trump was sitting there at the core of all this saying, no, like I said we're not going to cut Medicaid, we're just not going to cut Medicaid, that's got to be off the table – he could just fire people until somebody was willing right. to agree with that. But he's not 
done that. And so one, one, this seems to me to be the, one of his real fundamental, I don't know if weakness is a right term, but, but characteristics. He just doesn't care about this stuff enough. He's not fully formed on it enough. He not have enough of a theory of management, enough of a theory of ideological construction to one, hold the line himself and two, find or manage staff to hold the line for him. And so you have this sort of weird Sessions Island of Trumpism, and then just like everything else is a total hodgepodge of who who was he able to find, who could clear Senate confirmation, who seemed impressive when he met them, and also because this is weirdly important to Trump, looked like the person who would hold that position in a movie. So two things on that. One, I, I think that understates how much the sort of Republican establishmentarian types have have bowed to him in certain elements so like obviously they've like pushed the limits of what he said on entitlements but they're not cutting medicare they're not cutting social security old age insurance they are cutting disability but like i think it's clear that that's not what trump meant like i i think a promise is a promise but but do you think rubio would have been cutting medicare because i kind of don't really i really strongly believe he would like have included like ryan's like medicare privatization thing in his budgets at the very least would it have been a major push i don't know but like he would not have been shying away from it. And when you talk to Mick Mulvaney, when you talk to people at OMB, they're just like, we are very committed to the president's campaign promises to not cut Social Security and Medicare. Those are like arch principles of our administration. We're not going to like budge on that, which is interesting because Mick Mulvaney does not believe any of that. And when he was in the House, he was like very for cutting both Social Security and Medicare. The other thing is that like in the areas, the sort of like Jeff Sessions areas, there is zero resistance from congressional yeah. Republicans like yeah. Paul. Well, I mean, like the leadership, at least there might be one or two, like Justin Amash might be. Yeah, I mean, I do. I do think that when he wanted to put a lot of border wall funding in the like emergency funding bill in April, it clearly became clear that that was a non-starter. But. Right. But like you have Paul Ryan tweeting out his support for Kate's law on um, this like weird demagogic like bill to increase penalties for undocumented immigrants that's named after this woman who was murdered in san francisco like it's it's crazy and they definitely wouldn't have been pushing that the same way i think under rubio they might have under cruz but but rubio i don't think would have engaged in quite the same type of thing there but when trump is doing it paul ryan is totally on board i think that you know if you combine those two things together and think about it not in terms of what we're seeing as Trumpism in terms of like infusing the structures of the federal government, but what the Trump administration is telling the people who voted for it, right? Like Trumpism as a political movement. There's a question of, do Trump voters understand that despite what Mick Mulvaney says that Medicare is being cut, uh, which is an open question to which none of us have the yeah. answer and we won't know. Medicaid, you mean? Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. But that, you know, and then there's a second question of, If they do accurately understand that despite what Donald Trump and his administration are saying, their material benefits from the government are in fact being reduced, do they say, well, this is a violation of the promise you made to us? Or do they say, what is important to us is that our, you know, the spiritual goods, whether that's safety or knowing that other people aren't getting, you know, rewards for being lazy or something like that. Is that more important to us than the material, you know, the promises of Trumpism being broken? And that is not something that is also not something that we're going to be able to answer. The Republican Party appears to assume that as long as they're okay with kind of the spiritual goods messaging of we're going to protect real Americans and everyone else is going to have to finally bow down, that people will be okay with whatever the material consequences of that are. So one thing I think is is true there is that I like the focus on spiritual goods, which I know is a specific term here, but there's also a broader attitudinal Trumpism yeah. that really has held true versus the elites, versus the media, who are your enemies, what is America's role in the world. And you know, one thing to argue is that part of Trumpism is what is the character of the executive and the character of the nation as channeled through the executive going to look like? And that is a place where Trump has been quite consistent, right? He did not come into office and all of a sudden begin sucking up to the establishment. He did not come into office and stop talking like Trump, tweeting like Trump. He did not come into office and develop a different relationship with the media. I mean, he really, in the, in ways that are not highly substantive, but are highly demonstrative. He has not gone Washington in the way a lot of Republican politicians are perceived to go Washington when they get here. 
I don't know how important that is to people, but it was clearly part of Trump's appeal. You can make an argument that when Trump gets up on a Sunday morning and infuriates the media and freaks a lot of people out by tweeting some Reddit meme in which he is shown body slamming or punching some wrestler with a CNN logo on his face, <laughs> that he is fulfilling some dimension of his initial promise. Now, what that dimension is and what it means and how people understand it, I mean, that's all a little fuzzy. It's different than policy promises, but it is something, and it is a way in which people participate in politics tribally and want to see their tribal allegiances and tribal enmities reflected, and he's definitely doing that. And that's where the really interesting counterfactual of what if Trump, but also interested in policy, gets super interesting, because the last president to do that, to really invest in one side in a hot culture war, was Richard Nixon. Yeah. And Richard Nixon on policy, in very meaningful ways, was the most moderate Republican president of the last half century. So if you imagine a world in which Trump is absolutely that his worldview is absolutely defined by this existential fight within America, but also is defined to carrying out all of the things he said to make that, you know, to to infuse his presidency with that kind of culture war mindset, you actually do have on policy a more moderate Trump. Yeah, well, and, and Nixon is an interesting case, since like Trump, he was sort of taking his domestic policy after Congress, that that his sort of allies in Congress were, were moderate Republicans and and sort of conservative Democrats who could get on board for like his his universal daycare plan or his his basic income plan or, or or what have you. Well, at the same time, when there were like guys in hard hats who beat the shit out of some Vietnam protesters in New York, he invited them to the White House. Like he would get out on top of his his limo and like yell at protesters and like egg them on and tell them to attack him. Like and and people sort of were okay with that because they there was a sense that like he had grown ups in the room for the actual policy that you didn't have the same kind of sort of never trumper response of like this is decaying the dignity of the office and but I think there was a sense that like the people who voted for him voted for him because like he represented guys in hard hats being the shit out of hippies um and so as long as you satisfied that element like they would trust you and back you. I mean, this is a way in which perception is so powerful in politics and, and so interesting to think of as an independent force from policy and independent even from uh, real world circumstance. So Donald Trump was tweeting a couple days ago. This is a more normal tweet from him. You know, when will the fake news media talk about how great the economy is? And the economy is basically exactly as great as it was in the final year of Barack Obama's presidency. I mean, it's continued a path of gradual improvement, but it looks extremely similar to the end of the Obama economy, which Donald Trump is saying was a garbage economy where the real unemployment rate is 42% and on and on. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, that's all silly. But if you look at Donald Trump's supporters who, who you know, we should say our declining number, His num the number of strong supporters that Trump holds has fallen by about a third since entering office. So it isn't the case that everybody who backs him loves what he's doing. But if you look at Donald Trump's supporters, they do reflect a perceived improvement in the economy, not an improvement in the economy we see in any numbers. But having Donald Trump there just makes him feel better about things. And by the way, have Democrats and liberals having Donald Trump there makes him feel worse about things. Whether this is real, like how you want to think about it, what it actually means, it is real to the people experiencing it. We talk a lot about, you know, how people feel if their benefits get cut or even just if there is not an improvement in the economy, right? That's what you always hear. Like, what if Donald Trump does not come and revitalize these rural post-manufacturing towns? What if they just feel better about things, right? What if it's not really about revitalization? It's just about a sense of your team is in power and somebody's looking out for you and things are getting better. You know, one way you would look at to see if what he's doing is working, if he were actually doing things on the economy, which he currently isn't, is to see do people perceive the economy is getting better? And a lot of his people do, right? And that that is a it is a genuine change in how they think things are going that is related not to new policies, not to new Federal Reserve uh, management of the economy, but just to the feeling that, that their team, their team holds the levers of control. Right. I mean, to bring this full circle, if you have a an administration in which, you know, people abroad who could be applying for visas are not applying for visas because they feel they're not welcome in America and people in the U.S. who are 
supporters of the president, you know, feel that the economy is getting better and therefore are making economic decisions based on that. If reality is constitutive in both of those ways, it is fair to say that whether or not agencies in the federal government are instituting a Trumpist policy, that Trumpism exists and is a thing in the world. Yeah, that seems right. Well, and, and I think you're also going to see more evidence of just how loosely held certain policy beliefs are. I think people have the sense that that people voting for a candidate have some beliefs that they want them to implement and will be upset when when that doesn't go through, which is like almost entirely backwards. There's a really great book by this political scientist at Berkeley named Gabe Lenz called Follow the Leader that is, is sort of a persistent and super convincing argument that most people take their political views from leaders and not the other way around. And so like, and you see this with Trump already that like the share of Republicans who like Russia has gone way up and the share of Democrats who hate Russia has gone way up. And, and I suspect with something like the Medicaid thing, you keep waiting for people to be like, well, he's doing something that you disagree with. Why aren't you mad at him? But like the disagreement is secondary to liking him. All the leader is one of those books that will really mess up your head. Particularly if you're a journalist who covers these issues, you almost have to read it be like, that seems true and I'm going to ignore it. <laughs> because there's just no way for me to cover what I cover fully absorbing its implications. Night after night, two people lay in the same bed, but when it comes time to buy a new mattress, only one gets their way. Until now, introducing Helix Sleep, where you can buy a mattress online customized for both of you for hundreds of dollars instead of thousands. Go to helixsleep.com, answer a few simple questions based on four key preferences, and the result is a custom sleep profile used to build you the most comfortable mattress you and your partner have ever slept on. Your mattress arrives at your door in about a week. Shipping is completely free. And for couples, they customize each side of the mattress, personalized to suit each of your bodies and the way you both sleep. Helix customers report a 30% improvement in overall sleep quality, and there's very little risk here. You got 100 nights to try it out, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. No questions asked. So go to helixsleep.com weeds and get $50 off your order. That is helixsleep.com weeds for $50 off your order. helixsleep.com weeds. Are video games keeping young men out of the workforce? Dylan? It's decidedly unclear. Um, <laughs> so, just as some, some background for this de debate, there's been a long secular, as in like not related to business cycles only, decline in the share of men uh, who are working. Prime-aged men, 25 or 21 to, to 54. Um, this has been going on for many decades. Uh, no one quite knows what's causing it. A lot of the obvious uh, factors like men staying home because their their spouses or partners are, are earning money or more people going on disability, none of those seem to explain it. Um, there was a big paper that Jason Furman did for the Obama administration at the end of his administration trying to look at this. Uh, Nick Eberstadt at, at AEI has a whole book on this. And so there have been a, a bunch of attempts at trying to, to understand why this is happening. And one of the catchiest is by this guy uh, named Eric Hurst at, uh, at the University of Chicago, who thinks the culprit is video games. So his theory is that there is a sizable segment of young men in particular. Uh, he thinks this doesn't apply to women because they play phone games and, and phone games don't distract you from work the same way. But the, the theory is that there's a sizable share of, of young men who are like living in their parents' house, playing video games in the basement. And that this is explaining some of our labor market woes. Um, and he has a new paper in MBER uh, purporting to show that that the larger decline in labor force participation for or rise in non-employment for men at, at, at the lower end of the age scale, um, that that is declining faster than for older men. And he claims that most of that discrepancy can be explained by by video games. And, and he has some numbers, right? I mean, this isn't just theory, that if you look at time use surveys, there's been a reasonably significant increase in time spent playing video games. There has been. Um, how you look at those numbers is is where, where the rubber hits the road here. Um, Ernie Tadeshi, who is a, a, an economist in Obama's Treasury Department, um, generally very smart guy, you should follow his Twitter, um, has been sort of at war with Eric Hurst about this for a while and made a, a, a number of really good points. One is that the increase in video games between sort of 04 to 07 to uh, the present day 
uh, among young men seems to be totally offsetting a decline in TV watching, that the amount of time that this group has spent on leisure generally seems to have declined um, and been offset with an increase in either schooling or job search. Um, the the real divergence based on age seems to happen around like 2002 to 2004. So if you buy this theory, you kind of have to believe that there was something super special about GameCubes, <laughs> like, <laughs> like Xbox 360s that was not present in like N64s or the original Xbox. Um, and like, maybe. <laughs> um, it's also worth noting that like the theory that you can use time use as a way to predict quality of technology comes not from leisure technology, but from household technology, from the research on, you know, women had washing machines and therefore didn't have to spend as much time on housework, which seems like a very different thing. Yeah, it's it's a pretty different thing. When it also, yeah, that it it, it just d- doesn't explain a lot. That he, it, Even if you buy his numbers, it explains a lot of the discrepancy between why young men are, are working less and why older men are working less. But older men are also working less. And it's it it doesn't I mean, it doesn't fit our cultural stereotypes, but it also doesn't seem true in the numbers that there are a lot of 55 year olds. They're just playing Mass Effect constantly. So, so this seems like one of these situations where you have an actually reasonably plausible theory. And, and we should say what the theory broadly is, is that games have improved so much and particularly massive multiplayer online role-playing yeah. games have improved so much and you really can look at use of them and see those huge numbers of hours going into these games and that plus an increase in the amount of time young men are spending on games and some recognized difficulties in the labor market for young men it kind of if you squint it all sort of adds up but then i, I find pretty much every criticism lobbed at this paper fairly persuasive particularly the thing where Men, unemployed men, unemployed young men, which is, I think, the subgroup we're most interested in here. Yeah. The amount of time they spent on leisure has fallen from 2004 to 2000, I think it was nine or something, yeah. to 2012, 2015. And also, there really looks to have been a substitution away from television. Yeah. It, this is all weird for me because I am a very big believer in the Ready Player One dystopia. <laughs> I think that we are going to hit a point where VR is going to get so good that just the cost of doing a low wage job that you don't really enjoy is going to get reasonably high. And, you know, people are going to be on basic incomes and are going to want to hang out in their VR world. Maybe that's even a better world. I don't know, but, but I, I do not see a reason to think that the addictive qualities of continuously advancing consumer electronics are, are not going to eventually addict us. Like I really think that a lot of these things have the economic qualities of drugs, uh, but we don't treat them the same way and don't think of them that way. But it's just not – I mean, this isn't yeah. happening in Japan, right, yes. where they play a lot of video games. Right. There, there's been no similar scale decline. Japan is actually doing, like, the best out of OECD countries when it comes to, like, young male labor force participation. Now, they have a weird economy in a lot of ways, but they also are quite enthusiastic about video games. <laughs> Ezra, you know, it doesn't appear that this particular paper has – the criticisms lobbed at it have shaken your eventual belief in the Ready Player One dystopia, right? Like there's a certain extent to which even if this particular paper is not correct, the trends it is identifying seem plausible enough and are a robust enough model that like it will become true eventually. And, you know, the question of what does it – what do what does it mean and what do we do if this is true now or if it's true in the future is basically the question of what do we do when there's a large population of people who are not working and are okay with that? And we don't, we tend to have this debate when we talk about, you know, like welfare reform, right? Like the purpose. Right, right. Like the purpose of a lot of conservative social economic programs is to make sure that people are not okay with not working. But on the other end of the income distribution, or at least the class distribution, you know, there's very little talk of making the estate tax more robust because some people who have inherited a lot of wealth might not be inclined to work. So the like problems that we're seeing with this video game thing and the reasons that I think it's being tied to the idea of a universal basic income is that we're now seeing, oh my gosh, this is a social problem that cannot be abstracted to being a class problem. It's a broader thing. And what are we okay with a society in which someone can be satisfied with their lot in life without going the conventional bourgeois route of work, marriage, homeowning, childbearing? Right. An interesting piece of that in this paper is it shows these young men, they're not unhappy. They're actually happier than their predecessors were. Now, the paper, and, and I think it, it even says there's some evidence of this, although I didn't, I didn't think there was that much actually named, 
you know, but there's a real, there's a totally plausible concern that they're going to be really unhappy when they're 37 and don't have good labor market skills and aren't high and haven't married because they're not very marriageable and so on and so forth. You, you can read that different ways, right? I mean, we'll in some ways just have to see how that plays out. You could imagine that as having this sort of knocked up progression where people at some point realize that's going on and look around like, oh, nope, I actually have to get a job. And like, hey, he had a startup in Nakba. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Suderman's article in Reason, which Dylan sent around, which we'll yeah. include in the show notes, uh, actually does get a little bit into the broader context of how does this individual phenomenon end up reverberating for the rest of society that if you're interested in that angle, I would recommend checking out. Yeah, I think Peter sort of has has the uber optimist's view of this that and, and I think makes an important point that is lost by people who don't play games, that there really is a difference between spending a lot of time on a video game and spending a lot of time watching TV, that it's less passive, it's more involving, it's more like intellectually stimulating, and that it like provides sort of meaning and like spiritual comfort in a way, like which sounds weird until you've like played one of these big games. Like I I was not a big gamer um, and, until I met my girlfriend and she's like a huge Mass Effect player. And like it is a world that you can spend like 60 to 100 hours in and get to know the characters and get to know sort of the dynamics. And it's really rich and meaningful in a way that that even a show that I love is not. And they're people, right? I mean, yeah. you have a community there who you keep coming back to and they rely on you in right. certain ways. Right, yeah, for for multiplayer ones. And this is even just like a single player game. But yeah, if you're on if you're on WoW, if you're on um Overwatch or or something like that that you yeah, you develop a community. Um well, I, I mean, I think there is a population and there's always going to be a population that doesn't work. And we in policy discourse talk mostly about ways to get those people to work, um, that there's the, the amount of ink that has been spilled about getting people with like serious back problems off of disability to work is like is incredible and way less has been spent on like. How do you make these people's lives better? How do you make their lives feel more meaningful and full? That like acknowledging that some segment of our population is not going to be in the workforce. Like, how do you deal with that? And I think like video games like deserve a few cheers for like providing a real service in that regard. See, this is where the gender and to a lesser extent age aspect gets really interesting to me because for all of the people for whom, you know, playing WoW offers a community, there are a lot of women who either have been scared away from playing video games, especially like collaborative multiplayer video games because of harassment, or who don't even get involved because they don't think of it as a quote unquote girl thing. And if it is the case that there are people for whom this can be a central unifying experience of their lives and that they can be getting a lot of life satisfaction out of it, what does it mean that that is an experience that women are locked out of? What does yeah. it mean that it's an experience that older Americans, you know, who may already be struggling to find meaning in their lives are locked out of? Is it is if video games really are a good thing for the non-working? Yeah. Are we failing egalitarianism <laughs> by not making them more broadly available? And I think that that is a good twist. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think this speaks to something that is always interesting in these papers. And, and it's why, even though I find some of the criticisms of this paper persuasive, I actually also find the paper to some degree persuasive, which is th there are two kinds of – I shouldn't say there are a lot of kinds of papers. But oftentimes you have a little bit of friction between a paper saying something is happening versus a paper saying something has happened. Oftentimes these papers that are beginning to present suggestive data of something that is possibly at its beginning are saying it has happened. And I'm not sure it has happened. I'm not sure we are in a world where video games are the driver of a large change in young male work habits. Um, there's a lot of questions on the demand side of the labor market, on whether we're doing enough to create good jobs for people. I mean, there's really a lot of other things I would want to think about first before I begin looking at video games. But there is a theory here that makes sense. There's a huge amount of anecdotal evidence around it, including Peter Suderman's you know, piece on that. Uh, there is some beginning suggestive data that something is moving and changing here. And there are underlying technological trends that are very powerful and we know are only getting more powerful. I mean, I, the reason I'm a believer in the VR dystopia is because I've used the powerful VR sets. Um, I used one of the very new generation Oculus Rift at like some conference and it was stunning to me. We had just created virtual reality and nobody had told me. And it was like immediately clear, like when I put that on, that this might just be better than life, like pretty quickly. And it, 
again, it's why I often think drugs are a useful analogy here. These games are built to be addictive, right? They are built to be addictive. There's a huge amount of multi-billion dollar trial and error going into how to make people addicted to them. Um, the technology is built to make them more addictive, make it easier to play them for longer, make them more immersive. And I think that we would understand if there was, you know, like a new drug that was getting this kind of research and development poured into it and that people were enjoying this much and we knew that drug was going to get way, 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 way more, way better, we'd say, oh, that's probably going to have some effects. Like that drug is going to become more widespread. People are going to use it more often. Uh, And so do we want to do something about that? Do we not? These all seem to me to have the exact same quality to that. And so I'm not sure this has happened, but I think it's happening. Um, I think it's very likely to be happening anyway. And my guess is that young men are an early indicator here, that the next generation, uh, again, just from anecdotal stuff, and that's not data like I, I know. It seems to me it is becoming a bit more egalitarian. There's for, like all the stuff about Gamergate. It's part of a fight to make it more egalitarian, right? To make it something women do and can do. Uh, there's just a lot going on here that it makes me think that 40 years from now, 30 years from now, this is going to be a much bigger question we're all facing. And when retirees are people who grew up playing these games, right. the only person I know with an Oculus Rift is my 87-year-old grandfather because he's addicted to flight simulator games. And I in like – now that's weird but like when we're in our 80s we're all going to be doing like flight simulator stuff that's like how we'll send or or vr stuff at least that's that's what retirement will probably look like that seems like a good place to end (laughs) (laughs) so thank you to our producer bert pinkerton thank you to dara to dylan to all of you to the worlds of policy and politics for furnishing us so many wonderful depressing things to talk about uh, the Weeds is a Vox Media Podcast Network podcast. Uh, so is Worldly, which you should be checking out. We will be back shortly. <laughs>